Welcome to the Tennis IQ Podcast. I'm Josh Berger. And I'm Brian Lomax. And today, Josh and I are going to talk about something that really commonly plagues a lot of tennis players, which is a fear of failure. And we're going to go through some examples of what people fear, um, you know, how that manifests itself in terms of our performance, what we're thinking, how we're feeling on the court, and, and then we'll get into some potential solutions or ways of addressing this, you know, in, on a multiple, on multiple fronts. So I think, you know, one way to really begin to talk about fear of failure is, you know, exactly what do we fear when we go out onto the tennis court? And I think there are a lot of examples and, and Josh, I'm going to want to hear some from you that you've heard from, from players over the years, but some of the things I've heard are, um, you know, when there's a, a particular match is simply not wanting to lose the match is being one. Um, not wanting to lose to a specific person for some reason, or it could even be a team. There's some sort of dynamic there that that's creating that sort of fear of failure. Um, I hear a lot of times I just simply don't want to mess up. Um, sort of in a match, thinking about double faulting, or you maybe get to a deuce point, oh, I can't lose this point, that type of thing. And, um, and, and one that is perhaps worth even just discussing on its own is, you know, when we're ahead, like, I don't want to blow this lead or I can't blow this lead. Um, so th- I think those are some common scenarios. Are there any others that you've heard, Josh, or ones that you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I think you touched on a lot of the big ones. I think um, what, what, one thing that I hear a lot, uh, often with, with junior players who tend to be um, pretty focused on their their UTR or their ranking right. is is this this fear of maybe losing to a, a lower ranked player or a, a player with a lower UTR and uh, watching their UTR drop or being afraid that their UTR might drop. And based on the system, based on the algorithm of UTR, uh, you can even win a match Correct. and have your UTR drop if the match is competitive when there's a significant difference between uh, the two players. Um, in terms of that rating. So um, that, that, that is another dimension of, of things in terms of being so focused on the outcome of your ranking or your rating that you're uh, fearful of letting that suffer. Um, but yeah, I, I would say um, of, of the examples that you brought up, um, yeah, it, it, it often manifests itself in being afraid to miss. So maybe that is in a, in a match, you know, not, not wanting to, to double fault or not wanting to go for shots. Um, but also uh, within matches, maybe it's a certain player, maybe there's a past history there, um, or maybe it's not wanting to let people down around you. Maybe it's a coach or maybe it's teammates um, or parents or whatever it may be. Um, so I think that fear is not always just um, because that that player is fearful of the result, but maybe they're fearful of how others might perceive that result. Yeah, yeah, there maybe expectations or they perceive expectations. I, I'm glad that you brought up the UTR thing because I think it's perhaps it's an unintended consequence of UTR. Yep, is that it has in some ways um, discouraged participation where I think it, it was meant to not do that, right? It was meant to encourage more. Um, but I think, yeah, when, when people have some fears about that number going down, especially when they're in that zone of where they feel like they're being watched from a college recruiting perspective. We Absolutely. both have been college coaches. We know how much that factors into the recruiting process, right? Because I would imagine you probably would get an email from a prospective player, and the first thing you do is most likely is go to UTR and check it out. And based on that number, you may either discard or reply on that number, right? And 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 so I, you know, I think it's fair for us to be honest about that because that's what happens. Should it happen, I don't necessarily know, right? It's a good benchmark, but um, you can understand why then a player would have some fear about that um you know if you're say you know your age josh you're in your 20s and all right utr goes down or up it's not really super consequential right but 
I think you know being a junior player and uh, you know on that path to wanting to play perhaps for a particular program or even you're just worried about being able to play college tennis in general um, you can understand that but it also it doesn't help no it's it's definitely true and uh, yeah I mean as as a college coach um, UTR was definitely a, a resource that, that we utilized both to um, track the results of players but also to, to see if a player was in the right the right ballpark, the right range for, for what we were looking for. Um, where again, we get an email and, um, it's, I, I think UTR is a great resource for coaches because it, it makes it a lot easier to figure out if a player is in that right range rather than saying, okay, this person is number 10 in Texas. And how does that compare to being number uh, 35 in France? I'm, I'm not sure. Um, you can do your research, um, or if everybody's on the same rating system, it becomes a lot easier. So I I think as an initial point that that definitely was something that was used, you know, and then you watch the video and you talk to the player and you find out more about their background. Um, but it, it definitely, I, I think particularly for junior players that are in that recruitment process, they may feel at times that they have more to lose than to win with some of these matches. Uh, particularly if you're against a player who is lower UTR than you, uh, because no matter how much you win, even if you win 6-0, 6-0, um, you, you may not actually have that much to gain in terms of your rating, where if you were to lose that match or even play a competitive three-set match, it could set you back. Um, and maybe it's it, it, maybe you're a junior or you're a senior and uh, you, you feel that, that pressure of those coaches watching you or you're in that communication process. Yeah. So let's keep that scenario in mind as we go through this so that whether we have parents or, or players listening, there may be some things that uh, they could find useful in navigating through those feelings. Yep. So that ultimately they get what they really want, which is becoming the best tennis player that, you know, he or she can become. Um, and not letting something like this become a, you know, a source of interference in that, right? Um, so a, a lot of these things, as you were just mentioning, you know, have to do with some level, perhaps also of expectation, like expecting to win, expecting to play well, uh, feeling like other people have expectations that we should win, right? And And so... What we notice about all of these, um, you know, scenarios is that they tend to be more focused on what can go wrong, what the negative outcomes are. Um, and even while I was going through the examples, what was the verb that I was using? Do not, don't. And so it's very difficult to do a don't doesn't actually tell you what to do, right? It's, it's that language is, is all about avoidance. So, right. I like to say you know, the, the war, if I were the, like a terrible coach and maybe I am, but if I were a terrible coach, I could say to a player on a big point, Hey, Josh, don't double fault. Now, what have I done there? I have inserted the thought double fault into your brain. You're not really able to process the don't part per se. It's just the double fault now is the predominant thought. And so then that becomes what you're thinking about. And, and so we're talking about avoiding it. But I didn't, if I were a better coach, I would tell you more about what I want you to do, right? Hey, I'd like you to kick this serve out wide to his backhand. Yep. Right. Then that becomes something, hey, you can accomplish that. You can't necessarily, you know, telling you to not double fault doesn't really give you a very clear mission, but now you're thinking double fault. What if I double fault? Well, that's not good, right? And of course, you tighten up and all these other sort of physical reactions. So I think, you know, when we have some of this fear of failure, you tell me if, if you agree, Josh, that some of it is, is, become, is because in reality, we actually want to do well. And some of these things that we're thinking about are perhaps we see as threats to doing well, 
or they're maybe threats to our own identity as a good player. Um, and and perhaps though we need to get you know to get through this, we need to get back to the concept of wanting to do well. Like, what do you think about that? Yeah, yeah, I I, I would agree that the the goal ought to be, um, and and I think if you dig down, it it generally is to do well to perform at our highest level to master the sport. Um, but these short term, these matches, you know, matches or performances or even points get in the way of that goal and sort of cloud our, our vision um, so that we end up having tunnel vision. And all we can think about is that result right in front of us and maybe what we have to lose if we don't get what we want with that particular match. Um, you, you bring up, you know, that let's, you know, don't double fault or don't miss. Um, and then all the players starts to think about is double faulting. I mean, I, I even know in my own experiences playing, um, if I have to hit a second serve and I even think about the word double fault, my chances of double faulting go way up, multiply. Um, so actually I've, I've gotten to the point where if I'm about to hit a second serve and I even think of that word, I'll stop myself. I'll bounce the ball a few more times and I'll, I'll reset. I think something that's helpful there is to try to, um, we've talked a lot on this podcast about having a clear intention before you hit a serve or before you hit a return or before you go into a point. Um, actually talked about it with the uh, routines and the um, 16 second cure and having that clear intention as part of the preparation stage. But um rather than saying, hey, let's not miss here, or let's not double fault, trying to have a clear intention for how you do want to hit the serve. Okay, like you said, let's, you know, kick serve out wide to the backhand and maybe you want to set up your forehand or maybe you want to jam the person in their body or whatever whatever it is. But having a clear intention for what you want to do rather than what you're trying to avoid is going to lead to a better result more often. Um, so I... Um, the, the other piece of that that I would um, tie in is just that, and, and this is something that we've talked about in, um, in, in a couple of our recent episodes, is that you want to be win or lose. You want to feel that you've gone for it. You want to feel that you have um, you know, played in the type of way where you're going, you're playing to win and you're playing, you're going for your best shots rather than, um, rather than trying to just make the ball on the court and see what happens. Um, that's playing in a way where you're likely to have far more regret, regrets at the end of the day. So um, feeling, you know, trying to remind yourself of that and saying, hey, win or lose today, um, I can't ultimately control whether or not that ball goes in, whether or not my shots end up going in, but I can control whether or not I'm going for it or not. So trying to play in a way where you have no regrets um, it can it can also help to get over that that fear because you you feel like um, you know regardless of the outcome you're playing in a way that will ultimately give you the best possible chance. Yeah, and I think you know when you do that, then you can make better adjustments, right? So right. let's say you you know you're going for your shots, maybe there's like landing you know a little bit long. All right, so the adjustment there, perhaps a little bit more spin or. Maybe you take some pace off, right? You can actually make an adjustment to what that happened. If you are holding back and not going for it, there's really no adjustment that takes your game forward other than I need to to go for it, right? Um, and so you end up, in a way, stagnating your learning process there because you're you're holding back from trying the right thing. And it makes me think about there's this famous Japanese proverb that says, um, just paraphrase it, but it's basically like fall seven times, rise eight. Yep. And, you know, people look at that as um, it's all about persistence, right? You try, try, try again, and, um, and eventually you'll succeed. But um, I read an article that said it's actually the whole, the proverb is deeper, than just persistence and resilience. It says, okay, so why seven? Right? And so the when you look into the sort of the original text of it, it's that there might be a certain number of times that we need to fail in order to achieve a level of enlightenment on what we're trying to do. 
And so you could even think of that in the tennis context, like, Josh, I need you, I need you to miss this shot a hundred times in order to learn what you need to learn before it actually is going to work for you. And, and let's, you know, this is obviously not a really a true example, but let's say it was a hundred times. Wouldn't you want to get through that hundred sooner than later? Yeah, I, I, I really like that. Um, I, I guess I would add two, two quotes to that, um, that, that, that came to mind. One is um, by Thomas Edison, again, probably not a precise quote, but right. um, that in, in terms of um, the light bulb and everything right. that he did, he found 10,000 ways that didn't work um, in his pursuit. Um, and that, that, that would be the first one. The second one is by Michael Jordan, where he talks about hitting these game winning shots. And it's, he's saying, Hey, I've missed, you know, thousands and thousands of shots along the way to, you know, this many times I've been called on to make the game winning shot and I've missed. And that is why I'm able to, or, or that is why I've succeeded yes. because I've had those experiences where I failed and maybe learned along the way, but that failure is a, a critical piece to achieving that greatness, to achieving success and high performance. Yeah. And what do we remember about both of those guys? We remember them for inventing the light bulb and for being, you know, a very successful basketball player, right? Somebody who you can count on. We don't remember them necessarily for those failures, but 100% right that they, that failure was a big part of how they got to where they were going to be. Um, is it a pleasant process? No, but both of those quotes are really good in terms of it, it takes a level of failure, having to go through the process a certain number of times before you get the click. Yep. But if you don't do that, the click doesn't come. And so, yeah, I think that's sometimes this fear of failure is, is what, what gets in mind. We're thinking about those negative outcomes. Um, you know, in your educational background, what have been some of the reasons that you've either encountered or, or talked to others about with respect to why are we so predisposed to look at some of these negative things? I mean, I think evolutionarily, there's there's definitely a lot of um, evolutionary reasons for it, where uh, if somebody is more focused on what could go wrong, um, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago and thinking about you hear a sound and that's uh, the, the pessimist or the person that's more worried about what could go wrong, uh, you know, nine times out of 10 or 99 times out of a hundred, it's nothing. But that one time out of a hundred where it actually is a significant threat, the person who avoided that fear or that threat is the one that survived where the optimist or the one that said, Oh, it's probably fine. Um, didn't. So, uh, evolutionary evolutionarily, there are some, certainly some reasons for, being afraid, certainly some justified reasons for that. Um, and that, that is, um, I, I think a, a, a piece of it. Um, but, but also that, that we just in, in society, we are protective over what we have and we're not always thinking about what could be gained in a, in a certain situation, but, um, we're protective over what we already have over what we already possess. Maybe it is that UTR rating that we're proud of or that ranking. Maybe we're ranked, um, you know, we have a, a great ranking in the section and, and people are um, trying to take us down and trying to, to take that spot, but we are um, we have that to lose. So I think we're predisposed to, um, to, to be careful and fearful of what we have and that being taken away from us. Um, so we're protective, which leads to that fear and can lead to physiologically us tightening up and us maybe holding our breath. And I, I know we'll talk a little bit more about how this actually manifests on court and um, some solutions to uh, countering that in that moment. Um, but uh, I think it starts with the evolutionary piece. And uh, I, I think in, in modern society, people are, uh, more afraid of maybe what they have to lose and something things being taken away rather than always what can we gain from this situation yeah and i think we see that you know like if we look at this from a tennis perspective um generally not a life and death thing 
on the court, right? But as you say, a lot of what we are perceiving in our everyday lives is still going through the same threat detector that has been in the human brain for thousands of years. Yep. And it feels like it, at a certain point, we're running on you know old software that needs an update in terms of, all right, yeah, this, th- in this situation, it's really not life or death. And if I understand that that's how you know I perceive things, then we can maybe train that threat detector a little bit better, right? So we, we can, say, more easily put it aside as, all right, yeah, this isn't really a threat to me. It's even it's not actually a threat to my identity as a good player or, or like my UTR. Um, I'm not good. That all isn't going to go away because of one mistake or one loss. I don't, you know, go from say uh, a, a seven or an eight UTR to a one because I lost to so-and-so, right? Or I don't automatically become a bad player just because I had a bad match. Um, so I think that, yeah, when we look at tennis, it's not so much about the threat to our lives or our identity. Um, and then, yeah, the concept of you know, protecting what we have. Um, anyone who's read the book Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman would recognize the term loss aversion. So we do have this, yeah, we, we think much more about what we have to lose than what we have to gain. It's not, I don't think, a hundred zero, say, proposition, right? There's probably um, a blend, but we're, we're thinking more about what we have to lose. And, uh, you know, there, there are definitely situations within a tennis match where I think we that comes in, like that 5-2 lead. I mean, how many times have you heard some parent or kid tell you that they're really good at coming back from down 2-5? And then same kid might say that, has trouble closing out sets when he or she is up 5-2. Yep. Right, or parents saying the same thing, right? So there are dynamics on both sides of that that equation. So I think those are two things for players to keep in mind. Um, you know, are we detecting more of a threat to ourselves here than we should? And are we a little too focused on what we have to lose than what we have to gain? And from a tennis perspective, we have way more to gain whether that's in the short term or even in, from a career perspective, then, um, then we have to lose. So I think that that's important. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and actually what that, what that reminds me of um, is our, our recent conversation with uh, Christi, Christina Rolo and Dave DeHaan and this concept of viewing everything as, as practice. So yeah. um, even though it may not always seem like it, and it may seem that we have so much to lose, our, our ranking could drop, um, our UTR could drop, you know, what are people going to think of us? Uh, every time that we're out there, every time that we compete, if we can, if we can achieve that mindset of viewing everything as practice, we can view each day and each competition as a step to get better for that, for something down the road for, that we're practicing for, you know, next season or for that ma- that conference tournament at the end of the season or whatever it may be. Um, we're, we're learning these skills of mastering the sport, of mastering the craft ultimately. So I think being able to um, remember that and, and to try to hone in on that mindset of viewing everything as practices, everything as training for a later point, it's easier to, um, to recognize how much you do ultimately have to gain. Yeah, and they can help reduce the pressure, et cetera. Yep. Yeah, so we can get into that a little bit more. So let's now talk about perhaps some of the um, consequences, reactions, implications of playing with this fear, you know, this fear of failure. Um, you mentioned one already, or a couple things already, Josh, you know, that we tend to tend to tighten up. Our breathing may become more shallow, probably have some level of increased heart rate. So for those of, of us who have been like super nervous, I know I felt this, like you can almost feel like your heart coming through your chest, right? It's so, um, it, it's, it's like so palpable at that point. And so those are some of the physical things that can happen. What, what else, does anything else come to mind from a physical perspective? Yeah, I, I've noticed uh, players tend to, to grip the racket pretty tightly. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a big one. Um, may sweat more. Sweat actually. more. Um, we talked about sometimes when players are nervous, they'll 
become irritable over some minor detail. Maybe it's a fan in the audience or a crack in the court or the wind or some, some, or the sun or so, something like that. That's clearly out of, out of their control. Um, but, uh, that, that irritability is, and again, not, not so much a physical, um, implication, but, um, definitely impacts mental, performance. Yeah. yeah. A mental emotional yeah. one, right? Yeah. Yep. So your, your emotional regulation probably is corrupted your ability to make good decisions, your ability to focus on what's important. You, know, yep. you can easily get distracted by, by other things there, or, you know, you could even be so hyped up that you're, you, you have like this tunnel vision and you're not seeing enough of what's going on out yep. there. Um, yeah. Cause we even talked a little bit about, um, I think we did like the whole idea of positive emotions, right. In our positive psychology episode, you know, if we're feeling these fearful emotions, we're actually limiting our ability to think creatively, to think of options, to make good decisions where, um, if we can be thinking uh, more positively, more optimistically, try to work in more positive emotions, you know, we can be um, you know, more creative, think more broadly, et cetera. Um, so I think those are some of the definite you know, mental and emotional things. Um, how do we typically play, you think, when we're feeling like this and thinking this way? I, I, I think it sort of goes one of, one of two directions based on the, the type of player. So I think yeah. a, a player that's more based on maybe defense and uh, speed and consistency might fall into this uh, form of playing of not going for their shots, of just trying to get the ball in, of playing very passively to yeah. the point of leaving the ball short, um, where a player who is more on the aggressive side might start to fall into this really reckless style um, where they're just trying to hit winners at the at any possible opportunity, um, which leads to just... Um, the, the level of uh, inconsistency that is, is generally pretty hard to overcome. So it, to, from my experience, it, it tends to um, almost exaggerate whatever that player's playing style is and sort of bring out some of those worst qualities in either direction, whether they're yeah. more on the um, consistent uh, counterpuncher side or more on the aggressive side, it tends to bring out some of those worst qualities. Yeah. I was actually watching a, a match um, over the weekend uh, student of mine was playing in a tournament where they were actually broadcasting live stream the matches and he, he got into this kind of situation and the way you could tell it was happening is he was slicing his forehand all the time. I mean, this kid has a beautiful forehand, you know, when he's playing his best, he's hitting it aggressively into corners and, and so forth, slicing the return. Anytime he got just stretched the least little bit slice forehand and, you know, fortunate for him, he's like you said, you know, that can, more conservative grinder style, you know, fortunately for him, he's super fast and, and and can get a lot of balls back and ended up, you know, winning the match more or less based on his, his strength of speed. But, um, you know, this, this, that type of tennis isn't pleasant even to play when you're out there doing it because you, you're losing confidence maybe in a certain stroke. Cause I think that's actually something that can happen too. If, if one of your strokes is, is a stroke that you, have some level of doubt about you're probably not you're gonna hit that one even more conservatively like so this player yeah he's a little bit more anxious about his forehand than his backhand so you could really see it in the forehand more so other players it might be their their backhand maybe they start slicing that or pushing that more so um i think for the player who tends to be more aggressive you're right. They may want to end points quickly, and I think their you know their shot tolerance tends to go down. The anxiety level probably goes up. The longer the point goes, the worse they feel. Like I need to get out of this point, and therefore they they make they make bad decisions and, and they make more mistakes. And then I think you know one thing that we see, especially when it comes to the um, the loss aversion piece, is is choking. Um, which may encompass both of these types of things, but it's probably the worst feeling being up and then having your nerves or your fear of failure take over your body to the point where you can't even play. Um, I think 
for those people who have been tennis fans for a while, the Yana Novotna collapse at Wimbledon versus Steffi Graf, um, probably one of the biggest examples of this. Um, I think could be getting this wrong, but I feel like she was up four one in the third set, and then and then lost, and she just completely fell apart there to the point where Graf hugged her at the end of the match because she knew what had happened, you know, and we've all more or less been through it, not necessarily on the stage of center court at Wimbledon. Um, but I think, you know, those are some of the things that can happen when we, when we're out there playing, when we're thinking this way. Certainly. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes in that type of situation, uh, maybe you're serving for the match and that falls and it's sort of one thing can lead to the next where, um, I, I know, and I had an experience um, in a practice match actually, where I think I was up either five zero or five one, and just ended up losing that set seven five. Um, it was just one one thing led to the next, and at, at a certain point, it's it's as if you're you're sinking, and you just there's you know you've lost the momentum, and um, you know you're you're struggling with the pressure to the point where all that you can really think about is not accepting that it's going to happen, but almost expecting that each game is going to start heading in that, in that same direction. Um, I guess, I guess, Brian, are there any, any particular suggestions um, that, that you have or, or even interventions where if a player maybe has lost a couple of games in a row in that situation, um, maybe it's some of the um, things related to like releasing tension, um, but are there any particular um, interventions or tips that, that you would give a player in that situation that, that maybe they could try to implement to, to stop the bleeding in that, in that situation? Yeah. I mean, it's, um, if you're in that situation, you're out there. I think the first thing we have to recognize is that the way you're feeling is most likely what we need to deal with first. Um, because I think making, strategy adjustments or tactical adjustments uh, it could work maybe but they probably won't um, because you're you know you're so corrupted so I think dealing with that first all right how do we start to get some tension out how do we start to feel better a little bit uh, whether that's breathing and uh, it certainly depends on the situation too Josh right because it, let's say it's early in a match. All right, maybe you have time to just work through it and just be patient with it. And, and you know, still the first set, and you know, let's play three today or something, right? But uh, at other times, it can be more difficult having that more patient way to go. But I think if we can work on uh, releasing tension through some diaphragmatic breathing, bouncing up and down, shaking out your arms and legs. Um, even using like a progressive muscle relaxation technique, like gripping the racket really tightly and then loosening it up, right? And see how that feels in your hand. Um, I think from a focus perspective, once you've started to also work on that, let's set some our simpler goals. Maybe it's just about hitting specific targets or um, just telling your player, all right, all I want you to do is hit cross court. Very simple, right? Just hit the ball cross court. You're hitting... Making you're changing direction way too often here. Just go cross court with every shot, just so you can start making some balls, extending the points, and keeping your focus very simple. We're not thinking about outcomes anymore. Think about something very simple that you can do. Um, and if you can get some little bits of success with those smaller goals, then the player tends to start to feel a little bit better, right? Maybe some rhythm comes back. So I think working on both of those things together, you know, might even be, all right, let's use your forehand more. That's your favorite shot. Let's try to hit more of those, but simplify your targets, simplify your patterns. Um, you know, and I think, you know, you mentioned earlier um, the idea of understanding, all right, what's important now? Right, it could just be the next point or whatever. So I think those would be some things like if we're in the moment to try out, right? Um, release you know, breathing, bouncing up and down, and then just like simplifying what we're trying to do, just put the score out of our minds. You know, I think this is one of the beauty parts of college tennis is that you can actually 
work with a player kind of step by step through this. Um, and it's, I think it's something we as coaches should probably do more so in practice matches is to be there with them. And it's not necessarily that we're holding their hands per se, but we're really teaching them how to manage that, that particular moment or stage of a match so that when they need to do it on their own, they have that experience of having gone through it rather than having to make it up every single time that they, that they do it. Um, and you've probably had to do this when you were at Sacred Heart of trying to get, you know, one of your men's or women's players through a tough moment. Yeah. Yeah, so, certainly. Um, and I, I like, I like the suggestion that you have of, uh, doing that in practice and maybe working with that player either during changeovers or even in between points, um, you know, for a few seconds, um, because that's realistic. That's what they, during a match, yeah. yes, they, they, they should have the capabilities to be able to, uh, you know, handle that moment, uh, by yourself. And generally in tennis, you are by yourself out there, but college tennis is unique in that there is that coaching that, that is allowed. And, uh, whether that's, you know, that those 90 seconds for a changeover or even the 20 seconds in between points where you can talk to a player quickly and say, okay, let's, you know, let's focus on our breathing. Let's shake out our, our arms and, and hands here, right? Let's, let's do some of the stuff that we have talked about, um, on the practice court or in the, in the classroom. Um, and let's, let's put it to use here. I, I know that, you know, the, the opposing player has won the last three games, but let's focus on, uh, that, that cross court, you know, just hitting every ball cross court. That's something you can control. That's a very clear target, a very clear intention, or let's just focus on that kick serve. Right. Yeah. Um, and not try to worry too much about, you know, thinking, okay, I have a kick serve, a slice and spin serve here. I have a flat serve. I could serve to all these different places, but sort of limiting our choices and saying, okay, I'm going to just going to be going for the kick serve every time. Um, and maybe I kick to the backhand every time and I leave it at that. And that's something that you can control that, as you said, that little bit of success, that little bit of, um, being able to achieve that and maybe you start to win a couple points or maybe you win a game and you can stop that bleeding. And then at a certain point, you're oftentimes your thoughts aren't racing at that point. Your heart's not beating out of control. Your um, physiological symptoms of anxiety and of the nerves have slowed down to that point where you can think more clearly about, okay, maybe we incorporate some other parts of the strategy here. Okay. What, how can I use my strengths to my opponent's weaknesses at that point? But in that moment, I like a lot of those suggestions that you were saying of, um, you know, really change, shifting that focus on how you're feeling and then having that clear intention for, um, how you're going to play and just simplifying it as much as possible. Yeah. And then, you know, get, getting back to use of routines. Yep. Take more time between points, right? So think of this perhaps as a yellow light type of time um, and, 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 yeah, taking more time between points. You, you might even feel like you're at a situation where you're at the red light routine, which is, I always say, bathroom break, right? You got to get off the court. Change the dynamic a little bit, even if that's only two to three minutes, just sort of the act of leaving the venue, getting outside of a little bit can sort of begin to help relax you more. And then when you walk back in, it's a bit, you have almost a refreshed focus on something. Um, We see this a lot in college tennis after a player loses the first set. You know, he or she will, will take that break and, and very often will come back and play a little bit better or, or something. Um, so I think we shouldn't necessarily be shy about using that. And I mean, is it the right thing to do? You could probably question it a little bit ethically, but it's, you know, it's available through the rules. Um, and I think if, if, you know, we're in a really bad state, um, and the option is available, I would say, think about it. Yeah. And I think, I mean, ethically or in terms of sportsmanship, I think there's a big difference between going to the bathroom and, you know, taking that allotted couple of minutes um, to sort of reset yourself compared to doing something like an injury timeout. Yeah. Um, and, and another um, suggestion actually um, 
that that Brad Gilbert has from from Winning Ugly, um, again, great great resource is uh, to to change to 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 change something about your attire. Maybe it's uh, a fresh shirt or a fresh set of socks, um, and can can sort of send a signal to yourself that okay, let's this we need a fresh start here. We need to make a change, and you can you can actually feel that that difference of the fresh set of socks or of the fresh you know shirt or whatever it may be, um, and that that can can help to sort of reset yourself and give yourself that time um, to, to mentally and emotionally reset after maybe a bad, a bad uh, or a set that you lost or some sort of frustrating performance where you really need to sort of hit that reset button. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, for female players, you probably have to go to the bathroom if you actually wanted to change, you know, some, some bit of attire there. Right. So that can be one reason to suggest I need to leave the court right, is to, to make that, that type of change. I think if we're also looking at this from a long-term perspective, right, you might be a player who knows that these fears come up in matches. So how can I train for it a little bit more, right? And I think we've talked about a bunch of mindsets that can help with that because I do think very often the, the, the initiator of this is that threat detector, how we're perceiving what's going on. And so, you know, you mentioned, Josh, that everything is practice piece, right? That is something, if we can make that part of our, uh, you know, sort of our personal operating system, that that's how we approach everything we do, that can help. Um, we've talked many times about the idea of keeping expectations low and standards high. So the idea of, you know, not expecting to win, keeping your expectations realistic, not expecting that everybody expects you to play well, but can you maintain high standards on your behavior, your breathing, your body language, sort of controlling like the three feet around you and what you're doing there. Um, Things like, you know, when we talk about fear of failure, it's often about avoidance. Can we look at it from an embrace the challenge perspective? We've mentioned that a bunch of times in past episodes. So right, looking at this as a challenge rather than as, you know, some bit of bad luck or um, unfortunate circumstances. Um, and the thing with, um, you know, why we have routines between points is to help us be all about the next point. So if we can have always thinking about next point, next point, next point as part of, again, our operating system when we're out there, um, I think it can be very helpful in thinking more about, hey, this situation is going to come up. Here's how I want to approach it. Yep. Here's at least the beginning of how I want to approach it. And we may develop, you know, some specific self-talk cues out on the court that help us with it, right? You mentioned earlier the idea of of um, the, the second serve um, and mentioning how, and I think we both said this, you know, hey, let's give ourselves something to do, like hit the specific one. But I feel like it's almost like with something like second serve, we probably need to develop a an attitude about it, right? So that you feel belief in it, confidence, right? So when I have to hit a second serve, I actually tell myself I love my second serve. And that gets me – that puts all doubts aside. And what has happened is I actually really do love my second serve now, like – Sometimes it's more effective than my first, the way I hit it. Um, and so even just bringing that type of, you know, can we come up with different perspectives or trigger phrases that we use in different situations then that bring about the kinds of feelings and focus that we want in a, in a particular situation. So I think I, like sort of pre-planning this stuff is very really helpful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there's there's a number of things that can be done in terms of of self talk. Um, there's actually a play a player that uh, I used to work with who, anytime she would hit a second serve, um, I, I guess a, a former coach had had told her to to say this. She would always say "Grandma's cookies" to herself in her head because that would just make her make her feel good, um, and it would shift that focus from don't miss, don't double fall to something positive, something that brings back that, that positive memory. And it seems silly. It seems ridiculous, but like a lot of this stuff, you know, we, we can talk about routines and we can say, okay, here are the, 
the four steps to a routine, but it's all about making it your own. It's all about figuring out what works best for you. So if there's something like that, that you've used in the past and you've found to be successful and shifts your attention from the outcome of missing to maybe nothing to, um, to changing that outcome to, or to changing that thought to just something positive and pleasant, then then so be it. Then, then, then go for it. Um, and then it, it also in terms of some of these different mindsets, I mean, I think an important thing is to be able to, to shift your focus to, um, to the opponent at times yeah. and to think about, okay, can we do something that's going to make them uncomfortable? Right? Maybe uh, we've talked about part of your job as a tennis player is to get that opponent out of that comfort zone. Maybe it's by changing the height of the ball, right? Using some heavy topspin and getting the ball a little bit out of their strike zone up to their forehand or especially to their backhand side or using that low slice. Or maybe it's coming into the net and putting some pressure on them. Um, or even just shifting the way that you're viewing the situation and recognizing that if you're feeling tight, if you're feeling that maybe you have a lot to lose, then your opponent probably feels in a similar way they're a human being on the other side of the court um so recognizing that they feel nervous they probably feel nervous they probably feel pressure um i think is also an important perspective and the last piece here is that um is, is just a reminder that you don't have to be perfect and i don't think we've touched too much on this perfectionism piece but i think it's important that a lot of people i think that's that's tied to this that people feel that hey i have to be perfect. I have to do each and every, each and everything right. I, um, each part of my game has to be at the highest level. Um, but in reality, you just have to be better than that person on the other side of the net. You just have to be a little bit better and a little bit better of a problem solver or hit your strokes and, you know, a little bit more consistently or a little bit more aggressively or whatever it may be, but you don't have to ultimately be perfect. When you really break it down, I think most tennis players would acknowledge that they don't have to be perfect on any given day. They just have to be a little bit better and be able to problem solve and figure out the challenges that arise in that particular match. And I think it's a good point, Josh, because you'll, you'll hear from a lot of players like, I can't screw up. I got to be great today. Right. And it implies this necessity of being perfect and winning every point. But, um, I think one of even though the the tennis scoring system is a bit devilish in how it essentially tricks you into judging yourself after every point the beauty of it though is that it allows you to be extremely imperfect you can lose a ton of points and still win I mean you can lose a ton of points and win oh and oh right I mean yeah every game could go to deuce you just might be really good at Winning those add points or winning that deuce point, whatever it is. Um, and if we were to look at it from a points perspective, the score would be really close. But from a set perspective, it could be a blowout. So that's, to me, the beauty of, of the tennis scoring system. It allows you to lose a lot of points and still be successful. There's always You're always getting to renew. Like after a point is over, you get a new point. And it's a complete fresh start. After a game is over, a new game, and you're back to love, love all, right? Zero, zero. After a set, brand new. You're at zero, zero in the set, right? So you're constantly getting chances to start over again. And part of the trick of being mentally tough is learning to disassociate what has happened up until now with the present moment. Because if you're carrying the baggage of, you know, let's say it's late in the first set. If you're carrying the baggage of, you know, the first eight games with you, that's going to feel really heavy emotionally, mentally. But if you're able to constantly dump it, right? I mean, you can even think of this like as a, um, you know, metaphorically. Think of it as like luggage. If you're carrying sort of, and you thought about it as like actual suitcases, and you're not dumping the past. You're like, you've got all this luggage with you that you're bringing to like the airport. You got like 25 suitcases with you because you're unable to 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 dump it. You can't play with that kind of weight on you. But if you can be looking to just reset or flush things, however you want to, you know, conceptualize that, um, then you learn that 
this imperfection is actually a feature. It's actually a good thing that you don't have to be perfect. Um, and that not only goes for there's like the winning and losing of points, it's, you know, technique too. Um, as long as you, you know, it's not extremely limiting, we're not judging you on your technique, right? There's at the end of the day, like if you look at UTR and look at results, there's no artistic expression score, right? <laughs> sort of presentation there. Um, it's about being effective. Like you said, it's about being just a little bit better than that other person on the, on the other side of the net. But it does seem like a lot of tennis players do have this um, perception that perfection is, is necessary um, part of the game. And, um, but it it doesn't really require you to win a set 24 points to zero. Right. We'd all like to, to win golden sets. Um, but hard to do. Right. And I, I think I, I often will go back to that book winning ugly just because it, it, it honestly was one of the the books that got me, I, I, I think greatly improved my tennis game and got me interested in, in the mental aspects of the game. Um, a lot more. I actually wrote about it in my, um, in my, in my essay, my, my, what's it called? My, uh, no, not, not my dissertation in my, um, my application, my, my application oh, cool. essays for, for graduate programs, um, that that really got me interested and re- helped me to recognize how important that mental aspect of the game was. And I remember I shared it with a lot of my college teammates and it, it really helped to bring my game to that next level and just to have this greater understanding that you don't have to be perfect. You have to figure out during a match, okay, what is the best way forward? Um, Figure out oftentimes who's doing what to whom in this situation. Um, But you don't have to be perfect. If you can win ugly, if you can um, do things in a way just to get the job done, that's often what it takes. If you look at the professional level, it's, it's there's not a lot of six zero six zero. There's a lot of battling back and forth, a lot of 55% of points for one person, 45% of points for the other person. But the one that's able to win just a couple more points over the course of a match is the one that gets the job done is the one that's number one in the world. So it's, it's that it's, it's ultimately not a game of perfect. It's, um, and I mean, there's, it's challenging. Brian mentioned the scoring system. There's also a big net in the middle of the court. There's also a person on the other side of the court, or maybe two people that are, devoted to making uh, your goals, uh, your goals and your intentions of, of trying to play well, um, trying to sabotage them. So uh, it's a very challenging game. It's just a matter of, okay, can we be a little bit stronger than that other person? And I think uh, to me, a big part of this is having trust in yourself, is having trust in your abilities, not just your abilities as a tennis player, not just your abilities that you're able to hit a solid backhand or solid kick serve or volley or whatever it might be, but your ability as a competitor and your ability to be resilient and to adapt to the situation, whatever's happening, right? Maybe your opponent cheated you or you think they cheated you, or maybe you're down a set in a break or it's the windiest day of all time or whatever that, but that ability to, um, to, to know that you're capable of coming back, that you have the skill set and the tool set to, um, to figure it out, I think is, is one of the most important qualities that a tennis player can possess. Yeah. And I think dealing with the challenge of something like fear of failure helps you to become like, I like to think that there's a difference between an athlete and a competitor. Um, and I even remember, uh, you know, we had Bill Tim on the podcast. That's something that he said was, um, I remember he said this to the team one year that none of you are tennis players. You're all athletes who happen to play tennis. And he was kind of right. And that's where many of us are. Um, and I think it's the same difference with, between being an athlete and a competitor. It's, it's using uh, more than just your tennis skills. It's using your mind, it's using your understanding of the game, understanding of the dynamics going on between the two sides of the court, how the scoring system works. And I think the more that you're immersed in how all that stuff truly works and you practice being able to navigate all those situations, 
then that's when you become a, a, a true competitor. And you can even see this, I think, at the at the pro level. There are certain players who are um, – they're all great athletes, of course, right? But some of them are much better competitors than others. And um, not that – you know, I like Gail Monfils. Like I think he's really entertaining to watch and whatever. Probably is not a better athlete on the pro tour than him. If you look at pure speed, jumping ability, he's a, a, you know hitting the ball, he can hit it as hard as anybody can do. So many things. Will Gail Monfils ever win a Grand Slam? I'm. I don't think so. There's just doesn't have that next piece, right? For whatever reason, um, still a wonderful player, and. Um, but if you know you had to have somebody to play for your life, you're probably going to choose Nadal over Malfis. And not that Nadal isn't a great athlete, but there's he's got some extra things there that allow him, and even some of it's probably off court, and maybe the off court commitment to training, how he trains. Maybe it's smarter in certain aspects. Maybe he takes care of recovery better or other things. Right? There's more, just more of a commitment to certain things. So. I think it's a good thing to, for all of us to look to develop is not just our tennis skills, not just about forehands and backhands. All right, how do you put that together into a package? How do you learn to understand how the game is played, the dynamics, working with, against your opponent, um, the scoring system, um, all of these things. When you do that, you become a smarter player. And I think the, you know, the beauty of like a Brad Gilbert when, in Winning Ugly was he, as a kid, he played tons and tons and tons of matches. So he really understood how to win a set, how to win a match. And that's where we want to make sure that we're getting enough reps on going through the game more so. And I know that can be harder in for people who live in, in colder climates, it can be harder to get, you know, the court time to get those matches in, but it's so necessary to do that. You know, if we're talking about getting over this fear of failure and, and really progressing your game and becoming a really great competitor. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think, uh, one of the things that helped me as a, as a junior tennis player, and I think I've mentioned this before was, um, just get, getting those reps in um, and, and getting those reps in competing. Uh, I used to, to play in the Saturday night tournaments every Saturday night at Trumbull Racquet Club. Um, and uh, I had times where I'd win, um, times where I'd lose, times where maybe I'd struggle with the pressure or blow a lead. Um, and you have those experiences and you get those reps in. And then the next time where you're in that situation, you've been through it before. It's not new to you. It's not something you've never encountered before, but it's, hey, I've, I've been here time and time again, and now I know how to handle it. And maybe you you think you know how to handle it, and then you have a situation where maybe you didn't handle it in the best way again, but then you learn from that experience. And I think it also goes back to viewing everything as practice, not viewing any one particular match as life or death, as the end of the world, but hey, this is a step on this journey of my project of a tennis of my project of being a better tennis player of me trying to master the sport and to see how good of a tennis player I can be. And, uh, a good way to get there is by putting ourselves in those competitive situations. Um, and sometimes you're going to handle them well, and sometimes you're not going to handle them as well, but you're going to learn from those. I think that's actually a great place to stop, Josh. That's a great parting thought there. Um, and hopefully very beneficial to, to the audience to, to look at competition that way and, and help them get through the fear of failure. So um, that's our show for today. Thank you all for listening. For more on today's show, please check out the show notes. If you have any feedback or questions, please email us at tennisiqpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use the Twitter hashtag tennisiq. Additionally, please subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice, which includes YouTube, so that you can be notified of new episodes. Also, please check out our Instagram account, where we are putting up new episode notifications. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon in our next episode.